gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey, can you believe it? We made it. Episode number 200. Welcome, everybody. Historic stud cast number 200, part one. It's David Summers, and we are honored to be here and looking forward to giving every Studcast fan a real special event today. We have the gentleman with us today that suggested this very interesting concept for Studcast number 200. It's a two-part Studcast. Part one, today's show, is called The Ride So Far. It presents audio clips from the first 200 episodes. Part two, next week, will present The Road Ahead. And before we go any further, let's bring in the man of the hour, the reason we're all here, the storyteller himself, a member of the remarkable family that is the reason for every one of the first 200 episodes. He is the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller Welch. What's up, my man, Ron? Oh, geez, man. Uh, Really, really happy to be here, man. Uh, This this is a really... uh, a great day for my family and I. Uh, I consider it to be a great day for my family as well as myself. Uh, here we are at 200 episodes and counting, man. Uh, and, uh, and I think uh, this two-part studcast is going to be really, as you just mentioned, something very special. Uh, <laughs> on this first part, that we're going to, as you said, take fans on a long ride into the past. And next studcast, we're going to take them on a long ride into the future. So why don't you get us started, Dave, uh, maybe by introducing the gentleman who came up with this concept for the 200 stud cast. Yeah, I'd be absolutely honored, Ron. We're going to speak with our first ever listener guest on a regular stud cast. His name is John Edwards. He's from Bristol, Tennessee. Hey, John, what's up? Welcome to the stud cast. Hey, I really appreciate it. Glad to be here. Well, listen, you're you're here for a reason. You came up with a pretty cool idea on Facebook, and you caught the studs' attention, and we're, we're going to find out about the concept that we're going to be doing on this 200th studcast. Hey, stud, tell us about what caught your eye about the post that John, uh, or, or the comment that John shared. Well, uh, you know, first, I, John, uh, thank you very much for your suggestion, which I thought uh, the first time I read it was like, wow, this is unbelievable. It's a really great idea. And I uh, really appreciate you having on the show with us. Uh, you're the first person that we've ever had, I believe, first listener we've ever had on a studcast. And then I really, uh, I really loved your idea. I mean, uh, this is going to really give fans out there an opportunity to to hear what this was all about all these stud casts have been about they're going to hear little pieces of uh, some of the first 200 
And uh, then uh, in part two that's going to come next week, we're going to talk about the ride ahead. Uh, so, you know, we're we're taking the ride in the past uh, today, and uh, next week we're going to be taking the ride ahead. And So you're in Bristol, Tennessee. That's a beautiful area up there. I really love that area, John. Yeah, absolutely. And and just to, you know, talk about what you said, I, I really appreciate it, and uh, I, I feel honored to be uh, part of the show. I've been here for the whole ride so far. And, you know, so I know a lot of uh, new listeners will be uh, maybe getting a jumping on point. I actually had somebody tell me that they were excited because I I won't shut up about the show normally. (laughs) So he's like, well, I'm going to just start right then because I get to I'll get to catch up and uh, maybe go back later and listen to uh, all the stuff. So, you know, we're going to probably get some new people there. But, no, I appreciate it. And and really the way you guys have done it, the way you've done it, started with the, uh, you know, basically doing it like a TV show every week where uh, getting to live through it, uh, building up the excitement. Uh, it's to the point where I don't even want to look up what happened. Uh, you'd just rather <laughs> just wait around and, and find out, you know, whether or not you pulled it off with Harley or, or this or that. I, I love it. So it's, it's great stuff. Oh, I like that. I like that, John. I appreciate that. You know, I, I really enjoy it. I mean, it's, it's reliving it for me. Every time I look at it, too, I see those cards and the, and all of it kind of comes back to me, uh, what we were doing in that time frame. And, and, I, and I really appreciate it. And, and I, I think you're probably right. We are going to have some new listeners on this. And this is great. And for your friend there that says he's going to listen to this one and then go back and listen to him. What I tried to do in this one is we're going to listen to a lot of different segments. I'm going to tell which stud cast they come out of. And uh, hopefully uh, fans will want to go back and uh, listen, not to just the parts that we're going to replay today but uh, all of it. And I really appreciate it, John. Like I said, I was really blown away by your suggestion. It was really great. And I just, uh, we can't wait to go to work on it here, man. And we can't wait to just start uh, laying it out there for people. And uh, John, thank you so much for uh, joining us here today. Hey, Ron, I'd like to say, uh, you know, absolutely, you're welcome. And thank you for uh, having me on. And just to have you know, uh, you know, when I was a kid, other kids, what they were talking right around the time you guys came back to Knoxville mm-hmm. uh, was when, when I started into uh, everything. So this is all new for me going through, you know, Southeastern at this time. I had all these idols they talked about. They were seen on Saturday night's main event and stuff. And I was popping up stuff like the Nightmares and the Studs Table. So uh, <laughs> I didn't know about, it, you know, other wrestling. So. Uh, real, real excited, real honored to be part of it. Thank you. Well, that, that's great, man. So you actually didn't get involved in it until about 1984 or 85. You didn't get the first round of Southeastern for years there. started in 74. That's pretty amazing. Wow. Yeah, this is it. This is it. And you can't find it. You know, you know I mean, it's hard to find a, a lot of it. You've heard about all the classic angles and all this stuff. So this <laughs> is, uh, I, you know, I could probably write a book about everything that happened as soon as you came back to Continental. Yeah, how many studcasts do you think you've actually listened to? Oh, every single one of them. No, you've heard really, you've heard 200? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. I had a friend turn me on to it after just the first couple, and I, I was hooked. I was, I was hooked as soon as we started, you know, and all through the snake pit, everything they'll probably hear. I, it, right, was, right. it was everything I love. Wow, that's awesome. Well, John, th- th- thank you very much. I sure appreciate it. Uh, you're you're obviously a great fan, and uh, you know, uh, and your suggestion is just phenomenal. I think fans accept today this part and also the second part because uh, 
Second part, we're going to be getting into that 1985 era. We'll be be doing a lot of things that you're already aware of. But uh, thank you very much, Sean, for being on with us today. And I appreciate uh, you jumping in there and sending us a great suggestion. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. Hey, thanks, John. Okay, Dave. I think it's time for us to gallop along some of those small trails. It's going to make up this 200 stud cast ride, my man. (laughs) Uh, This is going to be, I think, interesting for fans. And I hope I have picked some good clips for us today. Are you kidding? It's all you, stud. Come on. All right, let's get this thing going. So how do we begin such a historic ride? Well, how about we we take a look back at that stud cast number one? I mean, you know, it's the very first stud cast, and it's called in the beginning. So why don't we start there? Why don't we begin there? And uh, and it's obviously where it all began. So let's start with my grandfather, Roy, the founder of the oldest and largest wrestling family on the planet. And uh, when I started this journey, uh, my first co-host was a great guy from Tennessee and a very recognizable one to a lot of people in the state of Tennessee, especially on the eastern side of the state. Tony Basilio is in this first clip, along with another great friend of mine named Craig Jenkins, who worked for me in my hockey companies. And he also, like a bunch of other people, kind of pushed me to start doing these studcasts that have, thank goodness, become so popular. So uh, this first clip uh, sets up the basic story of my family history. It's just kind of a short description of the hard times and the tough life that early family members and Welch family members faced. And it would eventually lead them to one of the most unusual occupations on the planet, probably professional wrestling. So, Lou, can we hear this first clip? We want to. Let's just start with Roy. Roy was born 1902. He lived in the West. When he was about seven years old, his family moved from Oklahoma to New Mexico in the high plains of New Mexico. They were raised really ruggedly. They only had a fifth grade education. He ended up with just a fifth grade education. He created the largest territory, the largest wrestling company that was ever built. And at the same time, he built the second largest dairy in the history of the South. At the same time, during the 20-year period of time, he built both of those companies by himself at a fifth-grade education. Life was tough for them. Crazy things happened in his life. And I used to ride with him a lot. When I was about 8, 10, 12, 14 years old, he would take me on trips, and we would talk, and he would tell me the stories. One of the first he told me, and he said when he was 9 years old, that they had cows. They had a few cows. They were in the northern plains in New Mexico. When the winter came, they had to drive those cows south off of the plateau into the southern part of New Mexico. And he said he would walk barefooted. He had his brother Herb was younger than him, was about seven years old, and the oldest brother Jack was about 12. They would herd the cows, and Ed, their father, who was half Indian, he rode the horse. He had the only horse. They had to circumvent the barbed wire fences. There was a few of them. This is the early 1900s. We're talking about 1910, maybe 1912. And they would drive these cattle south. He said the first time they did this, they went uh, probably 200 miles. It took them. They spent nights uh, on laying there. They just stayed with the cows. And when they got to where they wanted to go, his daddy told him, he says, on the way, he says, I'm going to teach you how to wire rabbits out of a hole. Roy said, what's that all about? And he said, I'll tell you when we get there. When they taught him how to 
how to get rabbits out of the hole, taught him how to build a fire. And when they got to where they wanted to go, he says, uh, the day they got ready to leave, he says, we're going home. He told uh, Roy, he says, we're going home. And, and Roy said, he was, he was like nine years old. He says, what do you mean you're going home? And they're there in the middle of the nowhere in the prairie. All they've got is like 10 cows. And his dad says, well, I taught you how to build a fire and how to wire rabbits out of a hole. You're going to follow these cows for the next three months. We're going home. And three months from now, we're going to come back and find you. You just stay with the cows. And at nine years old, he left him in the southern part of New Mexico. He left him a couple blankets so he could make him a little pad at night. He built fires because there wasn't a lot of wood in that area. He built fires with cow crap because uh, you couldn't find enough wood to build a fire sometimes. So they he bundled up the cow crap. That's how he started his fire, built his fires. He wired the rabbits out of the holes, and he ate rabbits and drank what water he could find and stayed there for three months. So he was raised like that. Herb, I'll give you an example of what kind of family they were, and they were tough kids. Uh, they had no shoes, like I was saying. They did all this walking and everything with no shoes. And he told me one time, Herb was seven years old. He was two years younger than Roy. He said they were walking down the path. His dad was riding a horse, and he rode down the path. And he said when they got to the spot, there was a tarantula in the middle of the path, big tarantula. He said he was, he stood up about five inches tall. He said he saw the tarantula first. He jumped off the path, and then his brother Jack jumped off the path, and Herb's the youngest of the bunch. And he said Herb just kept walking, and when he got to the tarantula, he picked up his foot, he just stomped it with his heel, smashed him in the ground. And uh, they were like, oh, God, look out, look out. Jesus, the tarantula, he'll kill you. And he's, he said, ah, he's just a damn spider, right? And uh, that's incredible. Roy, at nine years old, left alone to follow cattle in the middle of nowhere in New Mexico for three months, plus his seven-year-old brother, Herb, stomping a tarantula with his bare feet. It sounds like child endangerment, stud. Come on. <laughs> no, it's no wonder those boys grew up tough. That's, uh, that's, that's awesome. All right, where to next, stud? Well, uh, you know, uh, that's just a taste of it, Dave, of what we're going to get into today. And uh, now I've got a couple of more Roy stories. And I call the first one, uh, if you can't beat him, eat him. And, uh, and then we're going to have one from the original Dutch Mantel that trained Roy to shoot. So, and at that time, shooting, which is the word that's used to really, you know, to, to really learn wrestling and how to hurt people. It was the first step to becoming a professional wrestler back in the early 1900s. So, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to get a couple of little ones, quick ones here. And, uh, Lou, uh, let's play the clip. I'll tell you a story about my granddad, how mean he was, how bad he was. He was a bad guy. Uh, he told me one time when I was a kid, I rode with him, and I said, uh, I said, you know, what happens if you ran into a guy that you was really, really tough and you couldn't beat him? And he says, oh, that's easy. He said, if you can't beat him, you eat him. And I said, what do you mean you eat him? And he says, you take his finger. You start with a finger, and you get that finger in your mouth. You eat that finger, and then you eat the next finger. You eat the hand. You eat his arm. You eat his shoulder. You eat his till he's all gone. And I was like, hey, you know, I was like, I'm thinking, well, 
what what does that mean exactly you know and uh and then as i got to be older and being around other wrestlers i would ask them i said you know roy used to tell me if you can't beat him you eat him and they said ron he wasn't lying he said if he ever got to the point to where he thought he might lose or you might get beat he would he said he wasn't above just taking a big bite he liked noses is what they used to tell me he liked to start with the nose he would have had a field day with the italians <laughs> <laughs> like, like like buffet so we're talking about roy welch and we're back in the beginning and he's a young man how old was he when he got into the wrestling game for the record he was born in 1902 he had his first professional wrestling match in 1924 so he spent this time with Dutch Mantell, a few years with Dutch Mantell. And Dutch Mantell, just to give you an idea of what how tough Dutch was, uh, Dutch came to him. He told me this story. He said, Dutch one time says, uh, Roy, uh, I, want, I need to go to Houston, to Houston, Texas. Now, they're in Amarillo. This is 1922, 23 maybe. He says, I need to go to Amarillo. There are two wrestling promoters. He says they have matches in, in, in Houston. And uh, he says they're warring against each other. One guy has his big star. The other guy has his big star. And uh, these two guys, he says, one, these two promoters have gotten together and they've, they've looked at uh, – They've, they've tried to figure out who should have control of Houston. So they make an agreement. They say, you find your best shooter. I find my best shooter. We have a match in Houston, and whoever wins that match going to be the owner of Houston. The original Loser Leave Town match. It was basically not the promoter left yeah, town. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It wasn't just the wrestlers left town. The promoter left town. <laughs> yeah. So the two promoters sit down, and they make an agreement. Tell you what, hands. let's do. Hold right there. Share it with us. So, uh, first, let me start with the trip. The the journey from Amarillo, Texas, to Houston, Texas in 1920. Had Not to be easy in those days. It's a three-day okay. trip. Yeah. No interstates. Yeah. There. Oh, no, interstates. Oh, no. no roads. Lots of times, they're driving through cow pastures. It's crazy how they got there. And I'd already told you, Dutch was rich because he'd figured out how to make money by sucking all these people into these bets. So, he bought and one of the first cars probably bought in Texas. And he puts Roy in the car, and they make the trip from Amarillo to Houston. And when he gets there, he tells Roy, he says, uh, I need you to watch my back. You know, he says, I don't know what I'm going to get into here. You know, if I get down there and I'm going to wrestle this guy, I don't want that guy to have another guy jump in, do something to me from behind. You watch my back. He really trusted Roy enough. He says, you know, he must have thought this is the guy I need. So Roy says they get to Houston. He says the match gets ready to start. He said they go down to the ring, and he stands in the corner. There's another guy backing up the other wrestler, you know, and he don't know who that is. They've never met each other. They're not in the same dressing room. This is a shoot. The winner of this gets Houston, Texas, basically, right? So, uh they get in the ring. Dutch was a great wrestler, and Roy said, I expected that when they started the match that Dutch is going to take him down and he's going to put a hold on him. He's going to hurt him as fast as he can, obviously. And he says, for some reason, he says, uh, Dutch pushes him into the ropes. 
they break a hold. He says the second time they pushed him in the ropes, he said the guy threw a half punch at him. He took a swing at him. It's a wrestling match. But instead of starting out wrestling, the guy took a swing at him and Dutch hit the guy underneath his eye. And he broke that orbital bone right there. There's a bone uh, right underneath your eye that holds your eyeball in your face. Mm -hmm. He hit him so hard that the guy's eyeball fell out of his face. And the guy went down on his knees. He started vomiting because when when that happened, I asked Roy, I said, well, why did he start to vomit? And he says, well, think about it. He says, you got one eye that's looking out at the crowd and another one's looking at the floor. You know, and he says his equilibrium was just destroyed. And what his mind is seeing made him sick instantly. He went down on his knees. He vomited. That was the match. They stopped the match. And Dutch had won 20 seconds in. I mean, it's bang, bang, literally, bow. It's all over. He says they took the guy, put his eyeball in, in the ring. They took a towel, puts his eyeball back in the socket, covers it with a towel, and they take him out of the ring, and they take him to the dressing room. And uh, so Dutch gets out of the ring. Roy starts back to their dressing room, and Dutch said, no, no, no. He said, I want to go see him, see the guy, you know. So Roy says, oh, well, okay, whatever, Dutch. You know, hell, I, you're the man. So so they go in the dressing room, and uh, Roy says that the guy's sitting there. He's on a stool, and he's got the towel over his face, and he's bent down so he can keep his eyeball back in his socket, right? So he can get him to the hospital and try to do something for him. And he says, Dutch stops in front of him, taps him on the head, like to get his attention. And the guy looks up. He's got one eye now, right? He's looking up, and he's like, uh, oh, he's like backing off, like, well, don't you hit me. And, uh, and uh, he says, it's a good thing you quit. The guy goes, why? And he goes, because I was already looking at that other eye. Wow. <laughs> These are people that are just cut from a different cloth, so to speak. This is the Honky Talk Man, the greatest WWE Intercontinental Champion of all time. You're listening to Ron Fuller's Stud Cash. Congratulations, Ron. Number 200, 200 Stud Cash, and still rolling. Thank you very much. I'm just a honky man. I'm cool. I'm cocky. I'm bad. Man, Ron, that is incredible. Those two stories just took things up a notch for sure, no doubt. It's hard to imagine being around a man or men like that in that era. That's incredible, especially one being your grandfather. Okay, so where to now? Well, uh, we're going to go to Studcast number three, Dave, and uh, we're going to hear a bear story. You know, Roy's wrestling Bear Ginger. In fact, we're going to hear a little bit about her. And uh, she did have all her teeth and claws. And that was the only wrestling bear probably in the history of wrestling bears to have all of her own teeth and claws. Roy never pulled them because I think he loved his bear. And uh, so, you know, Lou, let's hear this one, Roy's bear. So he starts selling now. He takes his bear in his own territory. He never leaves with her again. He realizes that she's such a moneymaker, he's going to leave her here. So he takes his bear during the day. What do you do with a bear, right? I mean, you own a bear, but what do you do with the bear, right? And you don't put her in a cage and leave her there. He takes a stake and a sledgehammer, and he drives that stake into the ground, and he chains her to the stake. 
and he leaves her on a chain that's about 15, 20 feet long so that she can move around and walk and do her thing. And he put her in the backyard of their house. <laughs> okay. Now, this wouldn't work in today's What time. a character. I'm telling you. He's a, oh, he's a, he chains her and puts her in the backyard of his house. On nights when he doesn't take her and he goes to wrestle, he puts her on the chain. And my grandma and my dad and his sister, they're all scared to death. And there were times that she got off her chain and would try to get in the house. They you were just terrorized. growing up with a bear in your backyard? I mean, I, what is the matter with this guy? <laughs> I told you, this, he, he, was a, he was a character. There was only one Roy. So my dad, when he was 12 years old, part of the, the wrestling thing with the bear is he, he would do the match. And then at the end of the match, he would bring a Coke, a bottle of Coca-Cola. He would hand her the Coke. She would sit up on her butt, and she would drink the Coke. Well, the crowd really loved it. It was the end of the match. Here we go. Here's your present. To her, it was her reward for doing the deal. And she drank the Coke, and then uh, he would take her to the, to the dressing room and do the thing there. When Dad was 12 years old, he had her staked out one time in the backyard, and he was there. Thank God he was there. I wouldn't be here today telling you this story. But... Dad had some friends that everybody wants to see a bear. You got a bear in your backyard? Let's go look at it, right? You know, so everybody came. It was probably 10 or 12 guys. He, Dad tells me this story. And this would have been in Dyersburg? This is in Dyersburg. Okay. Dyersburg, Tennessee. This is back in probably, Dad was born in 27. Uh, he was 12 years old. 39. Okay. Okay. So 39, 40, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. He, he's, he comes and... Uh, and he starts, he don't get too close. He knows that she's on a chain, right? So he doesn't have a Coke. And he wants to do something to show that he, you know, for his friends. Hey, I'm going to show y'all what she does, right? So he goes and gets himself a Coke bottle, but it doesn't have a Coke in it. And he goes and puts water in it. And he takes it over to where she is, Ginger is. And he reaches out to get close so she's got to be close enough to pick up the water but he don't want to get close enough that she can get to him and he doesn't pay attention but there's a little slack in the chain and uh when he hands her he puts the water she reaches and gets the water she sits up and as soon as the liquid hits her mouth and she realizes it's not coke it it pissed her off right and uh i guess it's not good to piss off a bear so uh he, she drops the bottle, and she lunges for him, and he's a little too close. Mm. She has enough reach with her claws. Now, she's got her claws, so she hooks the back of his leg and drops him on his butt, and then she drags him underneath him, underneath her. And uh, he starts screaming right away. Now, Roy's there, but he's on the far side of the house. And uh, so now Dad told me this story. You know, I said, what was that like? What did she do to you? And he said uh, that he almost got away. He scrambled, and she dead, hadn't dug her claws into him yet. And he scrambled backwards, like with his feet trying to get away. And she said she reached and grabbed him, and that's the first time she stuck her claws in him. And she grabbed him in the thigh and drug him back in underneath her. And then she <clears throat> went for his stomach. She tried to bite him in the stomach, and he got his fingers in her mouth. 
uh, enough so that she just couldn't get it. Yeah, she was trying to move her head like, you know, I want to really get you good. And uh, and he and she let loose with her claws, and he slid away again. He started backing out again, and and she got him again. This time she pulled him, got him in the other leg, and pulled him back underneath her, and she bit him in the thigh. And they, and he told me he said. He, it was a pretty a pretty horrible deal for a twelve year old to see, but he said she bit him in that thigh and it it tore the skin and she pulled out his thigh muscle out of his leg. He could see his own thigh muscle and bit it in two. Pow! It popped like that, and then uh, you know he said he 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 basically passed out. I guess at that point, and uh, Roy was there. Roy came running around, screamed at her. She ran. She was scared of Roy. She backed off, and, and they took him to the hospital. And the rest of his life, all of his wrestling career, if you ever got a good chance to see his legs, he had scars all over his thighs and down into his calf area where the bear had tore him up. And uh, So I wouldn't be here today if, if Roy hadn't been there, and neither would Rob, and things would have been certainly different. We wouldn't be doing this, this broadcast for sure, but uh, – you know, at one time or another, I've been back, listened to every Studcast, Ron. This episode really freaked me out. And if your grandfather had not been there that day, I don't think, well, we would not be listening to these shows because you wouldn't be here. So obviously, you came from an amazing family. I can see this is going to be an unforgettable Studcast. So where, where to next? Where are we writing to next? Well, uh, that last clip, obviously, gives you a little idea of how my father was raised. So this next one's going to come from Studcast number seven. It's going to move us forward from about 1938, when the bear got hold of my dad, to about 19 years later, to 1957. And uh, Roy was nine-year-old when he got left in the New Mexico prairie. And uh, this is a story of what happened to me when I was nine years old with what my daddy did. So... <laughs> I wasn't left alone at that age, like my grandfather, with some cows in New Mexico for some for three months. But I certainly wasn't babied either. So this is a little picture of how my brother Robert and I were raised. So, Lou, uh, please play that clip. He would take us if there were if we, we had horses, we had bucking horses and he would try to train a bucking horse. And you can't hardly train a horse that's been trained to buck. He's you're not going to get him to, to make a riding horse out of him, but he would do it anyway. And we had some riding horses and we'd want to ride. And he'd say, no, no, come on out here with me to the arena. I want to put you on that bucking horse. And we go, well, no, no, we don't want to ride. We're eight, we're nine, ten years old. We're just small boys. And yeah, you're going to ride this bucking horse. Well, the horse would obviously buck us off. And then he would put us, he'd say, get up and get on him again. He'd buck us off. Get up and get on him again. I mean, this went on and on and on. And my mom would sometimes be watching. And she would be complaining. She would be bitching. Oh, God, God. She would say stuff like, you're going to kill them boys. You're going to kill those boys. And uh, he, his line was, and he never failed to change it. He'd say, yeah, but if we do, we'll get another one. And I was like, how in the heck do you get another boy? You know, I didn't even know anything about how you procreated. I didn't know any of that. So that was kind of the way that we were raised in our life. 
event after event. It was all the way up to we were grown enough that I went to college and, and I wasn't in a big hurry to go back home sometimes because when I went home to visit, instead of just him going, hey, let's sit in here and watch some TV by the fire or whatever, it's like, how about we go out here, man, and cut some wood and we'll split some logs. I mean, it's like, whoa, that sounds like fun. I mean, he was... He wanted to make us tough, I think is why he did so many things to us. And there are a lot more of them. Pretty amazing. He built the lake one time, that, and he put it, the lakes were built with these huge uh, overflow pipes so that when the lake got to a certain level, the water ran into the pipe. It was spring-fed, so there was water in there all the time. You didn't have to have rainwater. And uh, it would run, the water would run down this, the this pipe to about 30 feet deep and then there was an elbow there and it run through the entire dam and out the far side of the dam and he would put a cover on this pipe he had built this one lake it was right behind the house that we uh, he'd built as well and he sent he goes and tells me it's cold it's it's like thanksgiving and it's sleeting outside and he says uh hey boy uh put your bathing suit on and I'm like, what? A bathing suit? Hey, it's cold out there. He said, just put your bathing suit on. He goes in the kitchen and he gets the biggest butcher knife we have in the in the drawer. And he says, come with me. And we go out on the dam to where the the big pipe is. It's covered up. Now the water is about a foot higher than the pipe itself. And, and he needs to cut the pipe because it's about to burst the dam. There's so much water in the dam now in the lake. So he, so he says, he says, come here. <laughs> I walk over there. I got a bathing suit on. I'm shivering because it's sleeting. It's cold. And he says, open your mouth. And he turns the, the knife backwards and he shoves it in my mouth. And he says, swim out there and cut the lid off of that pipe. And I'm like, oh, thinking, Dad, gee, are you serious? And so I, I try to get in the water, and it's really cold. The water's freezing. So I come back out, and he grabs me and throws me about halfway to the pipe. And so now I'm out there. I'm wet. So I go on. I swim to the pipe. So I get out there. Now, the pipe is big. It's, it's two feet across. And he didn't think about what's going to happen when this the, the water is a foot higher than the opening that I'm about to pierce, that it's going to suck me potentially right into that pipe and, and Ron's gone. He can get another boy. You know, it's one of those deals where, you know, this is a situation that's going to get very, very dangerous very fast. So I pound through there. I finally slice through the top of that the covering over the pipe and the water starts to rush into the pipe. And when it does, I've got my legs wrapped around the pipe so that I can hold on to it to be able to, with enough force to pop through it with that knife. Then it starts sucking me headfirst straight into the hole, into the pipe. So I try to push off and it's sucking me in. I finally get my body turned around. Now he's screaming on the dam. He's not coming to help. He's saying, hey, boy. Push off that pipe. Come on, swim, swim. You don't want to get wet. I'm watching him, and I'm thinking, if I'm going to die, is he going to try to save me or not? And I push with my feet off the pipe, and I get about five feet away, and it starts sucking me back. I come back. I get my feet on the pipe again. I'm lucky enough to get it. I do it about three times, 
Uh, and I finally push far enough that I get away from the suction that's going to created by that pipe there. And he gets down knee deep in the water. He's about to, about to make the move. I think, well, maybe he was going to come and get me. And, uh, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of a short description of it, but it kind of, it kind of lends people to, to see, uh, how he thought about making you tough. Mm. Was he going to come get you? What do you think? I mean, it, right right now, in, in your mind, as we talk about it all these years later, decades later, was he going to come get you? What do you think? Uh, that's, the, you know, my point is, uh, you know, I, I was thinking that when I was fighting that pipe and I was trying to shove my way away from that pipe, and I was watching him thinking that, you know, you're going to you're going to dive off that dam. You're going to come and save me, you know, uh, aren't you? And and he never like I said, he got down with one leg in the water and it was up about knee deep. He had pants on long pants on. I've got the bathing suit on. I'm the I'm the goofball. You know, he's he's making me do it. And uh, I wondered then, you know, whether he, he, are you going to save me or not? You know, and uh I really don't know. I'm telling you, it is hard to tell which one of these two was tougher on his offspring, Roy or your dad. It seems like nothing came easy or ordinary being born into a wrestling family, especially yours. Well, I can't, I can't speak for all wrestling families, Dave, but I certainly can tell you that the Wells family members were definitely anything but ordinary. And, uh, Dangerous to be around uh, is a, probably a pretty good description of them. Uh, uh, they, mm. they were a little bit different. I'll say. All right. So, w- so where to now? Well, this next clip is going to come from Studcast number seventeen, and this one is a very special one to me. This one was a celebration of my sixteenth Studcast, and it was hard to believe we were now doing two hundred. Uh, I can't believe we've gone from. 16 and 17 to 200 of these. (laughs) And uh, there were many people on that celebration show, but the wrestler in this clip was not only a Hall of Fame wrestler, but in my opinion, he was also a Hall of Fame human being. Uh, We're going to hear from someone that's no longer with us, but he will certainly never be forgotten. I guarantee you that. Mm. So that makes this one special for me. And uh, can you play that clip, Luke? Stud, I'll tell you what, you really know how to throw a party, man. I I tell you, we put feelers out here on our anniversary show. And, Ron, we get turned down by nobody. I mean, we've got Hall of Famers in here. I've got a couple more Hall of Famers on deck. It's incredible the number of folks you know. Now, I want to kind of play guess with you here. Try to guess who this next guest is. Here in Knoxville, you guys have a legendary, a legendary past with each other. And across the southeast. And another tremendous wrestling family in his own right. Any guesses so far as to who I could be talking about? Uh, well, I, I, I'm not absolutely sure, but I know I know a couple of people that I go pretty far back with, and there's not too many of them in the Hall of Fame. So I think you're, you're maybe hinting that this next one is Bob Armstrong. You better believe it. Bow your head when you say his name. Bob Armstrong, so nice of you to join us on our anniversary special here on the Studcast, and I hope you're doing well, my friend. Welcome to 78. Uh, yeah, 
Can't complain. 78 years young, and how are you getting along these days? Well, I'm still wrestling on weekends. That'll tell you anything. Still working out three times a week and just trying to stay relevant. What does uh, Bob Armstrong mean to you, Stud? Oh, geez. One of the greatest wrestlers I ever went in the ring with, and not just a wrestler, a tremendous guy. You know, I can't believe you're 78 years old, Bob. I think you're just making that up, man. I mean, I still see your body. You still got that 50-year-old body. You know, and uh, and I watched you wrestle not too long ago. I was like, how can you still do that? I mean, you are truly an amazing human. You know, we worked out together quite a bit back in the early 70s. You had me doing pullover press outs. You're the first person to ever taught me how to do that. And I owe so much to you, man. It's just amazing. And I just, I love you like a brother. That's all I can say. Well, right back at you, Ron. I, uh, those pullover press outs, some uh, early Mr. Americas taught me how. Harry Johnson was the oldest Mr. America we ever had at 39 years old. And he told me, if you ever do any exercise, don't leave out, pull over press out. So I've still got a picture of me and you and Robert, and we're looking pretty good back in Knoxville in the day. When you first saw a young Tennessee stud, what kind of worker was he? What kind of kid was he? What do you remember about him? Well, Ron was a great wrestler always, but he was so tall it was hard for me. I was only about 6'1 or something like that, and him being 6'9 or 10, it was just hard on my shoulders. <laughs> he was, I always had to reach up even to lock up with him in the wrestling ring. Sometimes it'd take me a couple of days to get over it, and the tough as he was, and me having to reach up, it was hard on a little fella like me. Ron, was that something that you frequently faced in your career and that you towered over a lot of guys? Well, yeah. I mean, there's not a lot of wrestlers that are 6'9 or my height, but you get accustomed to it, you know, and Bob might have been a little bit shorter than I am, but he certainly didn't sacrifice in any other area of his ability. I mean, tremendously strong, fast-moving, a great, great athlete, and I don't know, man, you know, you pounded my midsection to make up for the fact that you couldn't get up to my head that often with some of those punches and thank goodness that you couldn't because you jacked my jaw way more than I to admit well i had to work on the mix section to bring you down to my size ron that was my only weapon <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a pretty good way of getting it done because you certainly got me down there you know you did ring my bell quite a few times and you know, it's just a real pleasure, Bob, to hear your voice. You know, it's always a pleasure to hear your voice. You and I go back a long, long way, and we've had, I don't know how many trips we've had, and we've had our ups and downs more than any guy I've, I've been around in wrestling in my life. You and I have been friends and mortal enemies. We've been back many times. I watched your family grow up. You watched my family grow up, and it's just been an honor and a pleasure to know you, man. Well, I appreciate that, Ron. I wonder if you felt like that that night in Knoxville that broke that cane over your head and we got sued <laughs> you remember that that's the story Ron you had a cane yeah. broken over your head and you got sued what's the yeah, story there actually I did and I definitely remember it I'll never forget it, you know and, and that's when back in the day I had my stud stable and I had my top hat on and I remember jumping up on the apron of the ring and I had my little cane that I took with time and somehow I dropped the cane and Bob got his hands on it and he uh, cracked me upside the head with that cane and 
Yeah, I don't remember too much after that. I remember being on the floor when they came and got me. But, you know, I owe you a whole bunch of blows. As a matter of fact, probably if we started recounting, you know, we could probably get into all types of arguments, you know. I I mean, I could have been world heavyweight champion if it hadn't been for you. I could look at it that way, too. But I think we both put a lot of that behind us. And it's just uh, yeah, it's you a, get older, Ron, have you, you on here, you yeah. being a Hall of Famer, and you certainly deserve it. Well, thank you so much. When you get older, Ron, you just appreciate that great competition you know while you're going through it you say to hell with him i'm gonna try to kill him but then when you get older you realize if it hadn't been for people like you and the fights you gave me we wouldn't be as prominent as we are now i get letters from all over the states i got one the other day from germany Mm. and he had watched some match between me and you i guess on youtube and wanted my autograph because of the match with you so it's uh it's amazing today how much uh, how small our world has gotten and how many people watch us wrestle from back in the day it's just truly amazing to me yeah it really is we got some people on this program already uh, fans of ours or, or the studcast fans that have have written from australia and from different countries all over it's it's pretty amazing all over the world our sport is worldwide and you don't recognize it and realize it until the internet pushes those old videos out there and the people still love it they've always loved it i think they always will we have the greatest fans on the face of the earth the wrestling fans we're very honored i'm honored and i'm sure you are too by the fact that they still know who we are and they still appreciate what we did yes it is it is an honor and it's, it's good to hear from them i get the letters and they'll specify certain matches that we had and they'll bring back memories that i hadn't thought of in years and it's it's just a pleasure to hear from fans so uh you're right it, it, it's worldwide now in fact my oldest son Scott just got back from a match in China where they drew over $400,000 in China. I could not believe it. Wrestling right now is worldwide, and, and we're a part of it, Ron, and I appreciate all the matches with you. You gave me all you had, and you know I gave you all I had. So it, it was really a pleasure, and I look back at those memories. I just I come back, and I've got a room upstairs, and I'll go up and just sit there sometime and think of the memories between you and your family and and me and mine, and it's just a pleasure. Well, thank you very much. Hey, everybody, this is Jim Cornette. I just wanted to be on the program and congratulate the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller on 200 episodes of the Studcast. The historical knowledge that he has kept alive through these audios should be placed in a wrestling Smithsonian. That was indeed really special, Ron. I would love to remind fans that fantastic Super Studcast number five was done with Bob Armstrong also. After his passing, you and members of your family also did a tribute to Bob in Super Studcast number 33. And both are absolutely phenomenal. You can find them both at tnstud.com. That's tnstud.com. Look for Studcast or Super Studcast. You'll find every one of them there. I don't think there was ever a person that knew Bob Armstrong that would have anything bad to say about him. I I think that's the kind of stand-up man that he was. And, and of course, you know that. And I also know he he meant a tremendous amount to, to you too, Stud. So what we just heard by itself is enough to make this celebration of Studcast number 200 worthwhile. Absolutely. Well, that's, that's a nice way to put it, Dave. And, uh, 
Yeah, I loved him. He was a great person, a great man, and uh, there'll never be another one like him, that's for sure. No doubt about that. So where do we ride to now, Ron? Well, we're going to ride into the Florida Territory in this one, to the Snake Pit, man, to be exact. Uh, Brian Last, at this point, was the host of the show. Uh, Tony Basilio had moved on, and this clip comes from Studcast number 40. And it was one of four consecutive studcasts dedicated to one of the most dangerous places and time in my early career on the planet, specifically about the 1971 time frame. And these four studcasts covered my experiences as a young wrestler, learning how to shoot, which meant learning how to really hurt people if necessary, in what became known as the snake pit. And in this particular Studcast and this clip that we're about to hear, Eddie Graham was introducing the guys that were in the in the snake pit that morning to a shooter named Gordon Nelson, who was about to stretch a mark. And we were going to get our first look ever at a brand new hole. And it was going to become an infamous hold at that. Uh, we're talking about the sugar hole. Wow. All right. So I've I've heard that one also, Ryan. The snake pit, by the way. Is not a place any sane person would ever want to go. Those four episodes, absolutely unforgettable, that's for sure. All right, Lou, set that clip up for us as well. Uh, this was pretty much the MO all the time in the snake pit is those guys that are there that Eddie wants to have taken care of, uh, they don't come in until, until he says so. They sit them in a waiting room. They dress them and sit them in the waiting room and – uh, and if Eddie's there, this is the way it's handled. Eddie goes and gets them, and he, he says, uh, I don't know what he says to them, but they show up. So on this particular morning, now we've got Gordon Nelson there. He's dressed now. We recognize, well, I don't know who he is, and I don't think anybody else, any of us know who he is. Uh, but he, we see that Eddie's got something in mind for this guy, and, and we're very, you know, we're all pretty well like, wow. You know, uh, this guy must be something special, you know. So then he brings Eddie brings in the guy that uh, that uh, is going to be uh, uh, decimated and annihilated for the day. And uh, uh, so he's the guy gets in the ring. Uh, Gordon gets in the ring. Eddie says, uh, you know, uh, Gordon, uh, he doesn't really give him a lot of instructions. He basically says, Gordon, he's all yours. You know, go get him, you know, and. uh so they start uh, it, very quickly, very quickly. Uh, you, I, I could tell instantly that Gordon is a technician. He really knows what he's doing. And uh, he he takes him down. He takes him down probably within to 10 seconds. I mean, wham, the guy's right on his face. Uh, and Gordon's on top of him. Uh, and then he rolls him. He does something that was really... It shocked us. I'd never seen that done before, too, is he goes right away for his hold. Now, that's not unusual. Uh, when you're a shooter, you, you don't take chances. Uh, you want to end it quick. You, know, you, don't wanna, you don't know who you're competing with. You don't know how good he is. Uh, so you're going to give all of your effort in the first two or three or four minutes to get control of him, uh, get a feel for whether your opponent has any skills or not or knows anything, and then you're always looking for that opening to get your move, uh, to get your finish hold. And uh, 
in my case, it was my dad's inside toehold. Uh, he called it the fuller lock, fuller leg lock. And, uh, Nobody else in the country, very few people in the world could use it. Uh, they couldn't do it because you had to have long legs to do it. And obviously I had the long legs for it. My dad was pretty tall. Uh, Rob could do it because he was fairly tall. But it was one of those holes that was really, it was unique. And, and we're about to see another hole that is unique and so simple. Uh, that was the beauty of what, what I saw. So he takes him down. Now, it's difficult to describe a wrestling hold. And, and we had a brief conversation about this, Brian. Uh, it's, you know, you, it's hard to tell somebody how to get a wrestling hold. It, it's easy to show them. And so, you know, what we were watching was, was pretty foreign to us, uh, you know, not having seen it before. But he, t the guy's on his stomach. And he reaches and and turns him onto his side. Uh, once he gets the guy on his side, he takes his arm. He 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 puts the guys. If 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 the fans out there can imagine, you're laying on your side and you put both of your arms in the air. Uh, he that's what he did. He forces his arms up into the air and he runs one arm down. But between those two arms and and toward and and behind the guy's head, okay. So now he's got what's called I call it a bar. He has a bar here, like a like a like you would do if you were going to, uh, to take something apart. That's the way you would do it: is you take a big bar and jam it between the object, and you would pry that object apart. So now the guy's on his side. He's got both his arms over his head, and and Gordon is on top of him. He's run his arm down uh, in front of his uh, of the guy's arms that are sticking up and behind his head, and then he pushes down with his body on top of the top arm, and and where I was like, I'm watching it, and I'm like, well, what in the heck is he doing? You know. Uh, it was so simple. I, I couldn't believe it was so simple the way the way he smoothly moved in there and, and got him in that position. Uh, then he started to to take his body and work it round toward the toward the guys so that it forced the guy's arms downward. And because his his arm is behind there behind the guy's head, when it forced his his arms downward. And he started to move around. It like shoved the guy's head down into his his chest, the upper part of his chest, where his collarbone's connected, and forced his breathing. You could tell he was cutting off his breathing. The guy, you could hear him. <clears throat> he's suffering to get air, and he he just kept like a like a machine rotating his body in the same direction and, and and it consistently pushed his head further down into his his collarbone area yeah uh, then it got to a point to where the guy was making these noises and, and and these noises i've heard quite a bit in the snake pit it's it's one of those the squeals like oh, oh you know it's like he's really in a lot of pain and Sitting and looking at it, I couldn't figure out how the heck is he doing this to the guy and it and it hurting him. So Eddie's there, and Eddie walks over to the apron. Now at this point, Gordon's got the guy; he's probably three feet away from the ropes, 
And he and Eddie walks right to the apron beside him, and and Eddie starts a conversation. Now they're talking like nothing's going on, like there's like like Gordon's not even wrestling anybody. And Eddie says, "Uh, geez, uh, what you got there? You know, uh, I don't, I've never seen that hold." And the, and the guy that the guys that uh, while this conversation going on, he's yeah, he's, he's like he's like gurgling and, and making all these horrible noises, and and Gordon looks at Eddie and he goes very very just softly like they were talking about uh, the having a dinner, you know, and he goes uh, uh this is this is my sugar, you know, and 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 we all now now we're all moving up there. We we want to hear this conversation, you know. Everybody kind of gets up there close so they can hear what's going on. What's this guy got? And uh, then uh, Eddie goes, uh, the sugar, huh? He goes, uh, I don't think I've ever seen that hold. Uh, he he says, uh, uh, how bad how bad can you hurt him with that hold? And Gordon's got the guy. Gordon's continuing to crank him. He's all the all the time moving that body around and shoving the guy's two arms closer together and cutting his wind off entirely. And Gordon looks back at Eddie, and the guy now is really he's he's just he's panicking. He's 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 dying. He can't tap out because he he can't touch anything. He can't do anything. He's helpless. And Gordon looks at Eddie, and he goes, uh. Eddie says, how bad can you hurt him? Uh, Gordon says, uh, well, he goes, uh, in about 30 seconds, he'll be bleeding out of his ears. <laughs> I'm telling you, that was horrifying. That was like a horror picture. It's hard to believe there was actually a place like that, Ron. <laughs> yeah, well, it definitely was. 106 North Albany in Tampa, Florida. They've had uh, <laughs> very few territories had themselves a snake pit. And this is a place where you could learn more than just what to do when the bell rang for a regular match. I can tell you that. Uh, you could learn things that uh, probably a lot of people should never know and they didn't want to know. And my grandfather and my father were both shooters. And I considered my snake pit experiences to be one of the most valuable of any wrestling training that I got, oddly enough. And uh, it was a remarkable place and a scary place at the same time. Oh, without a doubt. All right, let's take a quick break, Ron. Everything is a little different in today's Studcast, even the break as we normally take. And you may have some very special stuff to talk about that's actually happening this weekend on Saturday, May 22nd. So tell us tell us about what's going on. Well, I'm going to have a, a, a very unusual weekend. Uh, as everybody knows by now, or most everybody that listens to the Studcast, I've, I've recently moved back to Tennessee. And this coming Saturday, on May 22nd, I'm going to be back on the western side of the state, where I haven't been since I came back to Tennessee. And it's going to be the first time I've been there for years, as a matter of fact. And Saturday, I'm going to be doing a live Facebook appearance on my Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud Facebook page. It's going to happen between 2 and 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Central Time. And I'm going to be doing it from the Hilton Gardens in Memphis. A beautiful hotel, and it'll be a special one hour of things from my set, my website. Uh, you know, it's come give uh, fans an opportunity to uh, to join me for this. And uh, obviously, if you want to go to Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud, then you're not on there at this point. All you have to do is follow and like me there, and you become friends there, and you can you can uh, join us live for this uh, two to three o'clock in the afternoon 
that's this coming Saturday, May 22nd, Central Time. We're going to sell a few T-shirts. Uh, we're going to sell some Tennessee stud masks. Uh, we're going to have some photos on there. We're going to have my novel Brutus on there and available, and uh, possibly other items as well. I may come up with some things that fans will really, really probably get into. And it gives me an opportunity. I really love this but because it gives me an opportunity to say hello and to spend some rare time with the fans, you know, while being able to autograph some items that they, they purchased. They're able to purchase it right there. It's going to be the same price as it usually is on the website. So there's not an increase in price. And, uh, and I'll be autographing some of those things for fans right there. So that's this coming Saturday, May 22nd, between 2 and 3 o'clock Central Time. And uh, that same night, gosh, David, at 6 o'clock, I'm going to be returning to my hometown and birthplace, Dyersburg, Tennessee. Wow. And I'm going to be inducted into the Pro Wrestling Mid-South Hall of Champions. And I will be joining Jerry Lawler, wow. uh, Jim Cornette, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, uh, Jackie Fargo, Jake the Snake Roberts, Ernie the Big Cat Lad, uh, Bill Dundee, and Bobby Eaton. Oddly enough, Dave, I've wrestled many of these guys. I bet and, you have. Uh, no so, and so the venue where, where the inductions take place is, is named in honor of my great uncle, my grandfather, Roy's brother, Herb Welch. Wow. And there, it's called the uh, Mid-South. I think it's called the, the uh, Herb Welch Wrestleplex. Wow. And, uh, so, uh, you know, there's also going to be weekly live matches at this event. And they've been having those live matches in this building for years and years, every Saturday night. So I know there are, there are thousands of loyal Studcast fans in that part of the country. I get all these messages from them and uh, contacts with them, and this is going to give them an opportunity to come out on uh, Saturday night, uh, May the 22nd. I'll be there right after 6 o'clock at night. Matches start at 7.30. And I want to meet as many Studcast fans, shake as many hands as I can, and meet everybody that comes. And uh, this will be a rare opportunity for me to do that. I don't get to do it very often. Wow. And I, I look forward to shaking hands with Studcast fans, man. And that's oh, what no, I'm no. going to be doing Saturday night in Dyersburg, Tennessee. I got to ask, did did your great uncle know that they were going to name this venue after him? Or was he still with us when the, when it was done? I don't know, to be honest with you. I know that Herb lived there uh, most of his life in Dyersburg, <laughs> Tennessee. Yeah. He had a tremendous reputation. He was a very likable guy, very wild and crazy, as a lot of Welches were. But fans really loved him, and uh, he really became a superstar there. I know there was a tremendous tribute to him when he died in uh he had a, a funeral that had thousands of people there. I mean, wow. he, he was wow. he was really a figure for that community. And, uh, and I'm really looking forward to going inside his building and being uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame there. Oh, I can certainly see that. That's awesome. Plus, it, I mean, it just goes to show you're the busiest man in show business, at least within arm's reach, Stud. So, all right, a live appearance Saturday, May 22nd. Two to three simple central time on your Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud Facebook page. So as he said, go ahead and get it set up, like him on Facebook, and then you're inducted into the Mid-South Hall of Champions that night. Doors open at six in your hometown and birthplace. 
Dyersburg, Tennessee. So congratulations again, Ron. That is really awesome. So where do we go to now on this studcast number 200? Well, we're off to the Caribbean this time, man. The Bahamas, to be exact. And the next clip comes from studcast number 55. And it was one of the wildest places on earth to wrestle, Dave. I can assure you that. And <laughs> we're going to hear about some of the dangerous things, not only for the wrestlers, but for the spectators as well in that, in that island. You know, and these Bahamas stories, they've become legendary over the past couple of years. People uh, stop me all the time, and they love this Caribbean stuff. So for fans who have not heard, your Super Stud cast number three called Caribbean Chaos. It's full of some of the stories that this clip is going to tell and uh, a lot more of them than what we're able to tell on this show because we just don't have the time for it. But, uh, Lou, if you're ready, my man, uh, take us to the Caribbean. Yeah, paddle away, Lou. Let's go. We're in a, a place called the Nassau Stadium in Nassau, in the Bahamas. Uh, and it's it's a crazy, crazy operation. You come in through a pool hall uh, to buy a ticket. Uh, it's got a crowd that uh, makes noises like in the old Batman movies back in the 60s and 70s or whatever. Uh, the old, they, every time you punch somebody, you get a bis, boom, bah. It's like uh, they're holding up a sign somewhere that tells them what to say. It's, it's so you, you, it's really, it, it's, it's, it's unbelievable uh, compared to any place else that I've ever wrestled in the world. Uh, it has a wall around the outside of the stadium and the bodies, they throw people over the wall to get them in for free. Uh, the guy that runs the place is a gentleman named Charlie. He has a pool hall in the front, and he has him a loaded pool cue. And, and if he's close to him and he sees a body come over the wall, he goes and whacks him in the side of the head with that pool cue. And uh, it's like, wow, what the heck is going on here? Uh, they throw rocks. Uh, they throw rocks from outside the stadium over to the inside. There's no roof, obviously, on the stadium. And they also throw rocks at the end of the night, just like a meteorite shower. And the fans get up and hold their ringside chairs over their head so that they don't get hit by the rocks. There's a so there's, this wall has become a real problem here in uh, in Nassau. And uh, my my relative Lester Welch, my dad's uncle actually, my grandfather's brother Lester, is about the same age as my dad. He runs the Bahamas, and I've been talking to him about all these things about the wall. What do you do about the wall? And he's kind of come with a, he, he creates a, what's I call a Siegfried line from World War One, where they got the barbed wire wrapped in real circles and they, and he plants that on top of the wall. And the, the first time he puts it up there, the, by the time the show starts, the entire wall is full of bodies that are standing up there with their shoulders to each other, holding on to the wire, and bis, boom, bah, they're all going crazy, and somebody breaks it off at the end, one end of that stadium, and every one of those bodies go off that wall backwards. It's an unbelievable sight. I mean, guys go there. They're not so concerned about what's going to happen in the ring. They're concerned about what's going to happen in the crowd. It's one of those places on earth that, that you never know what to expect when you go to the Bahamas. So 
this Siegfried wall breaks off and Lester comes back uh, with a, he breaks these bottles. I've never seen anything as vicious looking as this, but he eliminates the wall as being a way to get into the building to the stadium. And he cements these broken bottles. He just breaks the tops off of them, leaves the jagged edges sticking up. He cements those on the top of the wall around the entire stadium. That's it. There's no more problem anymore. There's nobody going to get in over the wall or be able to stand on the wall or anything else. So he's eliminated that problem. There's only two things left here that they can see from outside the arena uh, what's going on in the in the stadium itself. And one of them is a giant oak tree on one side of the stadium, and on the other side of the stadium is a garage. So we're focused on the oak tree because that when we left the night that Lester had put the glass on the wall, I complimented him. I said, gosh, Lester, I, you, that's fabulous. You've really got it figured out. Uh, but I, I, I went on and I said, you know, but... Did you see the tree and the garage on both sides of the arena? And the tree is a oak tree. It's probably 200 feet tall. It's a massive oak tree. And he goes, eh, well, Ron, you know, I mean, I guess he's getting tired of hearing me complain about not getting a good payoff because half the crowd gets in for free. And those that can't get in for free, they climb the tree or they climb on top of the garage and they're watching for free anyway. So, he tells me, he says, well, Ron, uh, I, I think I'll do something about the tree. I'll take care of the tree. So the next week, he flies us. And I, I couldn't figure out why we don't fly with him in his private plane. He goes, and I think maybe his son, Roy Lee, goes with him and someone else maybe. Uh, but I get a, I get my first commercial flight in there. because, And I can't figure out why. But I get there and and I, I'm looking around and it's the, you know still got the same tree there the whole deal, and I asked Lester I said you know gosh have you done anything and he says Ron I'm, he confides in me he says I'm going to tell you what's going on with the tree and he goes you know he goes I I wanted to cut the tree down and he goes I go to Charlie that runs the complex here. And Charlie tells him, he said, no, man, uh, you can't cut down an oak tree in the Bahamas. It's uh, it's illegal. Uh, there's so few, you you can't do it. So so he says, uh, so he said, I talked to Charlie, the guy, and he says, well, how about if we cut it half down? And, you know, I'm like, wow, I started thinking about it, you know, like, whoa, you know, th this thing's going to fall <laughs> with all these people in it. And he, he, you know, I asked him, I said, do you think that somebody's going to get hurt? You know, this tree, nobody's going to know about it. And he goes, that's right. You know, and he goes, so I can't keep my mouth shut. So I go to the guys in the dressing room and I say, you know, the oak tree over here, man, tonight's going to be full like it was last week and like it's been most every week that we've been here. I said, but Lester's gone in there and he sawed it half down. He collected up the sawdust, and nobody will know. And so when guys don't want to work. They're, they're watching the oak tree. And because the, the wall has now got the glass on it, the oak tree is just, it's just packed with people. Um, and you can't see them. 
it's dark over in that area. You can't see them. You can just hear them screaming and making a noise. And the bis boom ba, they're doing exactly the same thing the crowd does. And so I'm watching that. I want to see this tree go, you know. And and uh, luckily, I'm not in the ring, and and it's probably halfway through the through the night. And all of a sudden, you hear this. They're they're rocking and rolling in the tree, man. They're just going crazy over there. And you hear this. <laughs> the first crack of the big huge trunk of it this tree had a trunk that's probably eight feet through thick eight feet thick i mean it's a massive massive tree and you get that first and and so i run up on the bleachers because i want to watch this thing go and uh all the guys there they they're kind of watching waiting for it too so they follow me several of them jump up there on the bleachers with me and we watch this tree fall it just was unbelievable sight. Uh, they guys in the top part uh, were jumping out, and they they were falling a great deal distance, and and you could see them clamoring to try to get to the outside perimeter so that the tree and itself and the big limbs didn't land on them. It was just an unbelievable to watch it go down, and when it crashed, it made this huge noise like it's like a a building collapsing and then you could see all of the people that that weren't able to jump out they were climbing out so it was like there must have been 200 or 300 people in that tree and they were climbing out of the roots and coming out from underneath it and it's like it took like three minutes for all of the bodies to get out of there Ron, I'm telling you, I love the Bahamas stories, even if they were extremely dangerous. However, one thing, we didn't hear my favorite line of that story where Lester Welch, your grandfather's brother, asked Charlie, the guy who ran the stadium after the tree fell, if anyone was badly hurt. I know, yeah, I know the one you're talking about, you know, <laughs> where Charlie says to him, yeah, I, I don't know, man, but some of them got up mighty slow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. And, and I watched him. I watched that deal, and, and, and he was exactly right. Some of them did get up mighty slow. <laughs> I love that accent. All right, you've had a wonderful life, Ron. So many countries, so many matches, and so many experiences. All right, we're staying on the trail. So where to now? Uh, we're going halfway around the world. Uh, this time in the opposite direction from the Caribbean. We're not just going to another country, but we're going to another continent now. So, and it was and still is one of my favorite places on earth, uh, Australia. Yeah. And uh, we're going to meet one of the most famous and successful wrestling promoters in the history of this sport, Jim Barnett. And this one comes from Studcast number 65. So, Lou, take us to Australia. Let's go back now to January 6th, 1973. Uh, Jim Barnett's very much still alive, okay? And uh, and we've just gotten in there. We've been a couple of days in a hotel. Uh, and he has, a, he, he has all of his wrestlers come in there uh, on January 6th, 73, at, at the uh, Chevron Hilton Hotel uh, for a meeting. He brings his crew, his new crew. Now, he's basically changing out his crews about once every three months. So this is a new crew. But some of the people were in the tour before. 
They come back again because they've gotten over, and he's a smart guy. He knows who's over and who's not. He's bringing some of them back again. So, so they escort us. I go in, and I'm escorted to the to the top to the top floor, and into a big conference room. And there's a bunch of wrestlers in the conference room already, and is customary. When you go into a dressing room, you've never been, uh, you, you go around and introduce yourself to those that you don't know, uh, shake hands, uh, you start making, re- building relationships. You try to build relationships with, with, uh, with wrestlers, uh, with your talent. Uh, at this point, I'm not a promoter yet, but, uh, that's kind of how you get your foot in the door with guys and, and you make an impression on them that being a nice guy or whatever, so everybody's sitting around in the conference room and they're talking to each other. And, uh, my dad's there. He's involved in the company. He's in the conference room. The only person not in the conference room is Jim. And, uh, so we sit there talking to each other and, uh, and all of a sudden, you know, in walks, uh, and I had not had at this point in 70 and 73, a lot of interaction with Jim. I had seen Jim on a couple of occasions, but I wasn't real. I, I didn't know him very well. And so here he comes in and Jim is now, he's not a big guy. He's probably uh five, seven. Uh, he's got a little pot belly. He's got a little fat there on the, on the, on the front of his body. And he has a habit of folding his arms and kind of laying them on top of his little pot belly. He has the wire rim glasses, the black wire rim glasses that he always wore. And he comes into the room and he struts across in front of everybody. And he comes up to a podium that's at the front of the room. And as soon as he walks in, everybody's talking. It just becomes immediately silent. Uh, it's like, uh, he made his entrance. I mean, and, and Jim liked to do this. He, he really enjoyed that spotlight and he liked to make that big entrance. And yeah, I see a lot of it as time goes by when I'm wrestling for him in Atlanta and the Omni shows and a lot of different times like that, he wants to come in and, and make his, make his grand entrance. So he makes his grand entrance and he comes to the podium and he he hesitates and he looks over the, all the all the crew. Now everybody is silent and he he he, paid, he takes at least a minute before he says anything and he his eyes go back from one side of the room to the next front row back row and then he goes I'll buy. He goes I see nothing here but money money money. That is a classic story, Rod, about one of the most unusual characters in wrestling history. All right, I think I think now you have another short clip for us from Australia also, this time from Studcast number 66. Oh, that's correct. They've uh, number 66, and I think there was a three of these from Australia, and then we're going to get a little something from two of them. And this one has got some bad weather in it. It's got some big, huge waves in it, and it's got my encounter with a deadly octopus in it. Uh-uh. So, uh, so Lou, let's let's get a little more from Australia. But how were the waves? Waves were well. I was out there, and uh, <laughs> toward the end, toward the end, uh, there was a couple of twenty footers came, 
Yeah. And the and when the Aussie guy told me, you know, I was going to catch one of them, you know, I was going to try to catch one. And he just about the time I'm going to go for it, he goes, no, I wouldn't take that one, mate. You know, and, and then he gave me the same story on the next two because there were a series of three of those boys. But, yeah, I mean, it, it just everything just it, the surf got bigger. Uh, the skies got darker. It was pretty nasty looking situation. Uh, let me talk a little bit, uh, Brian, about those. Australia is a dangerous country. I mean, it's not it's not just the sharks that are in the ocean. Uh, you got crocodiles up there in the northern part of the country. You got saltwater crocodiles. I mean, our crocodiles, we don't even hardly have crocodiles in our country. There's a few in the Keys in the northern part between the landmass of Miami and the Keys where the Keys start themselves, a few little crocodiles. But they've got the big salts up there that are 20 feet long to weigh 3,000 pounds. They're just monstrous things. They've got these venomous snakes. They've got the venomous spiders. They've got the poisonous sea animals of all different kinds. Uh, just things that you that we in America don't have any. We don't have that type of stuff. So I'm down there one day on the same beach in Cronulla, and they've got these big, huge rocks out there. They're volcanic-looking rocks that the waves break on top of. And I go over to those rocks one day, and I'm kind of climbing up on the rock, and there's a couple of Aussies around me. They're up on the rock, too. And and I look down, and in those there was little pits that, that you could, that were little puddles that you could form a little, like a little pool there. And in one of those pools, I see this beautiful little blue ringed octopus. I'd never seen anything like it. I was like, wow, look at that. So I reached down there and I'm going to touch it. And thank goodness there's a couple of Aussie guys there. And uh, I reached for it and the guy goes, oh, no, mate. He goes, I wouldn't touch that if I were you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to get a lot of this while I'm in Australia. <laughs> and yeah. And, and so I go, uh, I go, well, what, why? What, what is it? And he goes, that's a, that's a blue octi, mate. And, uh, you know, and I said, well, so what? You know, I mean, uh, I, we got octopuses. I've seen octopuses, you know, and he goes, but, but it's a blue octi, mate. And he goes, uh, you touch him and he stings you. And he says, uh, uh, we just take you up on the beach and, uh, and talk to you for a little bit. And I said, yeah. And then what? And he goes, then, well, then you're dead. You know, I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I go, wait a minute. Uh, if that thing stings me, you're saying I ain't going to get to the hospital. And he goes, that's it, mate. He goes, you know, you got two or three minutes, you know, he goes, you get stung. He said, we walk with you and we take you up there on the beach and we sit there with you till you're gone. You know, I was like, whoa. Hey, this is Les Thatcher. I'm hanging out with my good buddy, Ron Fuller. And celebrating the 200 Studcast. Way to go, buddy. Are you kidding me, Ron? I would love to visit there. But they've got a lot of very dangerous spiders and the snakes and the sea life. So uh, I'm in no hurry to get there. Well, you know, they're also living back. I got to say, Dave, though, in one of the most beautiful countries on the planet. And many of those people over there are still good wrestling fans. They certainly were back in 1973. And, uh, and I still have a whole lot of friends there. Uh, I love that place. And uh, I can't wait to go back myself someday. Hey, we see your fans and friends from that area pop up on Facebook from time to time. So that's, 
That's pretty awesome. All right. For those who have not listened to the three Australian studcast, number 65, 66, and 67, I highly recommend them. So do check them out. Ron's stories from there give fans a great idea of what it was like in 1973 to be down under for at least a couple of months. All right. That's cool. So where to now, stud? Well, we're going to ride with Andre the Giant into his favorite restaurant. Oh, no. We're going to Waffle House, my man. And so, <laughs> Tie on the feed sack. I was hoping you were going to pick that story. It's one of my favorites. All right. What stud cast was this one from, Ron? Uh, this one comes from number 88. And it's one filled with stories of uh, one of Andre's first trips to Knoxville. And uh, he's working for me now, not just a friend and as, as a wrestler, but as an owner. Southeastern wrestling, you know, and it didn't change Andre a bit and it didn't change me a bit. And uh, Lou, uh, uh, let's eat. Stand clear. So the next morning I pick him up at the hotel and uh, I'm going to take him to the airport. And I ask him, did he eat breakfast? And he says, no, no, he hadn't had breakfast. So, so it's my first meal to eat with Andre. I'd never seen him eat before. So I asked him where he wanted to go. And uh, he he said the name that he almost always said to me after that, I can't imagine this, and I don't have any reason for it or whatsoever, but Andre's favorite restaurant was the Waffle House. <laughs> and, uh, and, I mean, yeah, I was going to learn as years went by that uh, this was his favorite place to eat. And uh, so, so uh, I'm going to take him to the Waffle House. And... Uh, so we go in the Waffle House, and and there's one not too far from the hotel. It's kind of on the way to the airport. And we get in there, and I sit down on one side of the bar. He sits on the, in the booth. I can't imagine how he's going to squeeze into the booth, but he shoves that table over to where I'm not hardly – I can't breathe hardly. He's taking most of the table, but it's just me and him. And uh, the waitress brings us menus, and then she's gone, and she comes back. And she must have recognized who he was. Uh, but uh, she asked me what I want, and I tell her what I want. Uh, you know, regular type of breakfast. You know, I, I'm eating more than most people, but uh, certainly not uh, what Andre probably is going to do. I have no idea what Andre is going to order. Uh, so he's holding the menu, and she says, uh, uh, Mr. Giant, <laughs> Mr. Giant, Mr. Giant, uh, <laughs> what would you like? You know, and he said, he's holding the menu, and he kind of, puts it up toward her face and he goes, uh, I want the menu. And, uh, and she says, uh, she's confused. I could see it in her face. And she goes, uh, Mr. Giant, uh, you have the menu. And he says, no, uh, I want the menu. And, uh, and she says, uh, do you mean everything on, on, on the breakfast side? He's showing her the breakfast side of the menu. And, uh, and he goes, yes. And she goes, you want everything on the breakfast side of the menu? And he goes, no. He goes, I want everything on both sides of the menu. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, my goodness, Andre, are you serious, right? I mean, so, hey, I, I get my stuff, and they start bringing his food. He starts out, she says, which side do you want first, Mr. Giant? I want breakfast. Uh, and then he's going to eat lunch and dinner, too. Uh, so uh, 
It took, I don't know how long we were in that restaurant. It was just unbelievable. They just kept bringing plates. Once I finished, they took my plates. They filled the table with food. And he would eat this, and they and the girl was right on top of it. She'd take the plates, and she'd take another one, and then another one, and bring back three and take three. And it was like, wow, this just kept going on. It seemed like forever. I'm thinking, Andre, we're not going to make the plane, you know. <laughs> like, I'm getting worried here, man. I'm not going to be able to get you there in time. But that was just an unbelievable thing to watch a human being eat that much food at one time. I'm telling you what, it never gets old. This number 200 part one studcast is absolutely turning into an incredible ride. You pick some of the fantastic moments in your family's history and many others involved in your studcast as well. All right, so we are now well past an hour and all of us would like to go much longer. I mean, if, if that's possible. So uh, what do you have left in this great ride today, Ron? Well, uh... I've, I've selected two large parts of one match, and it's the only match description in this 200 studcast that we're doing today and in this special one. And it's spliced into one segment because of its length, but it is perfectly appropriate for where we are now in our weekly studcast. And even though this studcast and this clip comes from studcast number 169, it brings us kind of up to date to where we are presently with the present day uh, studcast. So it features a wrestler that was in the latest studcast, and he's also going to be the focus of the future studcast number 202, which is just a couple of weeks away. Mm -hmm. So we're basically going back to October 10th, 1976, to the Terry Funk NWA world title match with me. And today in this clip, we have set up the match. We're talking about the introductions of both of us as we go to the ring. And then we're going to finish it with the end of this historic event uh, as Ronnie Garvin gets involved in the match. So, uh, Lou, uh, please play the last clip for us. So you've kept us in suspense for weeks now. I mean, you've done an amazing job building this thing up. It's time to hear what happened on October 10th, 1976, the NWA world title match between you and Terry Funk. All right. Well, I mean, we've kind of set the stage here. Uh, I, I want to start this, Dave, uh, with something I talked about in last week's studcast when I we talked about the television that was advertising this big event, uh, several other things. And we talked about the Terry Funk interview that ran in that TV. That was the day before this match now. So we're, we're backing up here. Uh, so the day before this world championship match is a Terry Funk interview. And in that interview, he demanded that all the fans in the building stand and cheer for him when he was coming to the ring. And, uh, and, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say, well, no, no, I'm not sorry to say I'm happy to say it didn't happen exactly like that for him. <laughs> so, but he, when the bell rang, he did go to the ring first. And as soon as fans could see him, because there's a big black curtain that goes all across the back of the Coliseum, and the, the baby faces come out of one side and the heels come out of the other. Mm -hmm. And so Terry goes to the ring first. And when he comes out of that black curtain and everybody in the Coliseum can see him, they all slowly begin to rise to their feet. It's pretty <laughs> amazing. By the thousands. I mean, it was like I, I watched it. You know, so, 
And it, I, I was like, dang, that's just what he demanded. But the, there was one difference in what he asked for. Uh-huh. So they weren't cheering for him. They were <laughs> booing the hell out of Terry Funk. <laughs> I mean, everybody in the building was standing up. Uh, you know, I'd seen and been involved in many NWA world title matches, but I had never heard a world champion get a reception like that. I mean, wow. The animosity of the crowd was just unbelievable. I mean, it, it was especially if you considered the fact that he had never wrestled in Knoxville before. This is his first time ever in Knoxville, and he is going to the ring, and there's hardly a person in the building that's sitting down, and every one of them is booing him. So so Terry, being the great worker that he was, and then he had such great instincts about uh, how to get over and how to get heat. Instead of making a quick walk to the ring, he slowed down. As soon as he started getting those big boos, you could see his gait slow down. And he started looking from <laughs> one side of the building to the other side of the building. And uh, he took his time getting to the ring. I mean, he let that anger build. It just mm-hmm. got more and more, louder and louder. By the time he got to the ring, the entire building, all of them were on their feet. Wasn't any doubt about it. So I watched his entrance. Like I said, I'm in the back of the building. I'm behind the curtain, too. And I just pulled the curtain back and I could see him going to the ring. And I heard, obviously, I couldn't help but hear what was going on. So I watched his entrance uh, out of sight. People couldn't see that I was watching. And once he finally stepped in the ring, He raised his hands above his head, the old consummate heel move, as if he'd already won the match. And uh, by simply doing that, I mean, he forced that crowd's reaction to go up another level. It was like, wow, I thought they were already booing. They just went absolutely nuts in. So I just waited a little longer, you know, so that he could milk it for a little more, you know, and that's basically what he was doing at this point. He just kept milking that crowd to get everything he could out of him before I showed my face. So when I finally appeared and I, I, I got the opposite welcome he got, the crowd was still standing. They hadn't sat down from booing him and standing. They were standing and, you know, doing for him what he had asked, but they weren't cheering him, but they were cheering for me. And boy, I got those instant goosebumps. I mean, <laughs> and on the way to the ring, I mean, I'd never had that happen before. That building was just electric, even before the introductions of the match. Wow. Did you guys have music back then? No music. This is the other day in time, man. It right. wasn't like right. nowadays. I mean, you just sort of, the bell rang. You went to no the fireworks. Ring. There's no fireworks. There's no theatrics. There's no special thing happening. But yeah. it wasn't necessary. They yeah. had. How could you get everybody on their feet? And there was nothing except just his entrance and my entrance. Yeah. So. Wow. The entire building, they never sat down or quieted during the time that I got there and they introduced us. They just kept roaring. And when we came to the center of the ring after introduction to be checked by the referee and before the bell was rung, everybody in the building, I looked around. I didn't see anybody sitting down. I could hardly hear the bell ring for the crowd's roar. It was that big already, you know, and there's that. So, you know, now over the roar of this huge crowd, he stepped up into my face. Uh, and we're in the middle of the ring. We've just been checked. And he, he shoves his chest up into my chest. And he says to me, back up. 
I was so fired up by the crowd, man. I didn't want to back up. I mean, I, I was ready to do something, you know. And so he had to yell, you know, like, and he, he probably thought I couldn't hear him because they were just screaming so loud. You could say anything you wanted to. Nobody's going to hear what you say. Yeah. So he yells at me again and he goes back up. And, uh, you know, and I didn't know what, where, where we were going with this, right? It's the beginning of the match. But I knew I didn't want to back up. I knew that. I was like, oh, wait a minute. That's ain't the way I want to start the match. But I also knew he's the champ by God, and uh, and he's it's his match to lead. Being the champ, uh, you're going to lead the match. So I finally took a step back. And uh, kind of what I expected, the crowd noise dropped off a little bit. And he stepped forward right away, chest to chest, face to face again. He said, back up. So I hesitated again, and uh, he had to say it twice again, you know. Uh, and, and when I backed up that time, the crowd noise went down another decibel. Mm. So slowly, he backed me across the ring into my corner. And when we got into my corner, where I couldn't go any further back, he's face-to-face with me. His chest is shoved up against my chest. He says to me, uh, step forward. So right then. I finally got it. I mean, what this was all about. And uh, and I stretched my body out as tall as I could be, man. I was towering over him. He's about 6'3", but I had I had to be seven foot. You know, I stretched myself as good as I could. I changed my expression on my face to a defiant one. And I, and I just looked down on him, man. And uh, when I took that first step forward, forcing him to back up, Boy, here came that crowd again, and it was like, wow, he's going to stand his ground. And I backed him all the way across the ring, a step at a time. Uh, the crowd noise grew with every one of those steps that he took backwards. It, by the time he reached his corner, it was as high as it had been all night. And when he got to the corner, he jumped out into the ring on the floor. And the roof came off the building. <laughs> like, wow, look at this, man. He's scared. So, uh, oh, what a beginning it was. I mean, we'd spent the first three or four minutes of this match. We didn't lay a finger on each other. We'd already had our first pop of the night. And, uh, you know, when match begins that way, it's like, like pure magic. I mean, you know that you have the crowd and you know that that match is going to be off the charts good. I mean. Wow, you just don't know how good it's going to be, but you know this is going to be a special deal. Man, are you kidding? This uh, uh, really, I don't think I've ever seen a match begin this way or a crowd that reacts to you two guys. So what happens from there? Just after the 50-minute mark, uh, I went, got, got the fuller leg lock on him. I almost had it, and he grabbed the ropes. He was able to pull himself into the ropes. And before I got him, when I hooked that hold, I have to roll backwards. I roll forward on my head, and it carries his body backwards. But once he grabs the ropes, I can't pull him off the ropes. So the referee broke the hold. And uh, when the referee broke the hold, Terry hit me with one of the first punches of the entire match. Yeah, this is uh, crazy. We have a 50-minute wrestling match. It's pretty much a wrestling match. But at this point, uh, I about got my hold. Uh, he blocks it by grabbing the ropes. The referee calls for a break. I give him a clean break, and he hits me with a low shot. And, boy, that building went nuts. They exploded like, oh, God, there it is. Here it comes, you know. And then he grabbed me by my right leg, and he started right into his spinning toe hole. And he spun around on my leg twice. And the third time, 
that he was getting ready to spin, the referee was passing behind him because the referee wasn't in a position where he could hear me give up if I gave up. So about the time the referee's passing behind him on that third spin, I kicked him right in the face, and it shot him backward, and he collided with the referee, and the referee went out of the ring on the concrete floor hard. You could tell he wasn't expecting it, and he went backwards straight out onto the hard concrete floor. Wow. So there was always a second referee watching a lot of these world championship matches in case something like this happened to happen, you know, so that the second referee could come down and continue the match. The match didn't have to stop and he didn't have a fluky finish. So there was a second referee standing by that night. So Terry went down face first, you know, after I kicked him in the face and he collided with the referee, then he went down face first. And I crawled over the ropes where the referee had gotten knocked through. And I kind of drug myself up to a standing position. About the same time, Terry's getting up and he sees me hanging there. I just kind of put my arms over the top rope uh, because I had feeling his toe, his spinning toe hold. So I'm just kind of hanging on the ropes there. And he turns around. He runs across the ring opposite to where I am. And here he comes, man, charging across the ring at me. And he dives through the air with a big old forearm headed straight for my head. So I saw it coming, and I just dropped down on my butt on the ring floor. And uh, he missed me. But when he did, he flew over the top rope out of the ring, and he almost landed on the referee that's laying out there on the ground. And uh, he never touched me, you know. But uh, when I grabbed the ropes and started pulling myself up, I saw the referee roll over onto his back. So he sees what he sees is Terry come flying over the top rope right where I was standing. So the referee on the floor is still down and he's not moving. He saw Funk, like I said, come flying over the top rope, but he's still unable to get to his feet at this point. So the second referee, as soon as he saw the first one go out, he's headed down to the ring. So uh, as he arrives down at the ring, just about the time that Funk is crawling back into the ring, Funk crawls up on the apron. I'm waiting for him. At, at this point, I pretty much recovered from everything. And when Funk bent forward and he came through the ropes between the middle and, and the top rope, he was in perfect position for a jackknife. Some people call it the small package. Great move. One of, it's a tremendous move if you, if, you, if you can hook it good. And boy, I really did. I just caught him. His head was down. He was at the perfect angle. And I hooked him in a small package, brought him right through the ropes. And the second referee was right there. And he counted him out and signaled for the bell. The building exploded. I mean, wow, I'd won the world championship. Now, the second referee that is in the ring and it is counted out funk and he's rang the bell. He goes and gets the belt and he hands it to me. And I mean, man, I'm celebrating with the crowd. The ref that went out on the floor, he's crawling back in the ring about this time, and he starts waving off the wind, basically. But me and the crowd are celebrating like crazy. I got the belt over my head, and I could see this first referee that took the bump on the floor uh, pantomiming to the second one what had happened. And he was kind of doing his arms like I threw Funk over the top rope. So, you know, they were face-to-face arguing at this point. Yeah. I was holding the belt in my hand above my head, and, and there wasn't an ass in their seats in that building. Everybody was on their feet. For real? So the head referee, the first referee, the one that went out on the floor, 
he could finally convince the second referee that I was disqualified for throwing Funk over the top rope. So I stood out the belt, and the crowd at that point considered me the new world champion. So the announcer had already announced me as soon as the, I was given the belt that I was the new world champion. But the two referees went over to talk to the announcer again. So suddenly the bell started ringing again. That was going to denote there was something wrong with the finish, obviously. And the announcer began announcing what had happened, and he changed the decision right there. So this automatically and obviously dramatically changed the attitude of this huge crowd. It went from a jubilant celebration to my having won to a potential riot. Wow. (laughs) They were like, they were angry about it, you know? (laughs) So I'm still standing there. I still got the belt. I'm still holding the belt over my head, and Funk nails me from behind. I drop the belt, and then he starts to slam me. And uh, when he did, I dropped down behind him. And by golly, this time I got the fuller leg lock. I put the roll in and I had Terry Funk in the middle of the ring with my hold on him. Now the match is already over, but the fans don't give a damn at this point. They're (laughs) like, wow, look at this. He's going to break his leg. So, you know, now the crowd's going wild, but it's in a different way. They had gone from being angry to being happy to being angry again. You know, at this point, they're happy as heck. I got him in the leg lock. You know, they're still unhappy with the fact that I'm not the world champion. But, uh, you know, they thought when I had him in this leg lock that this is it, by golly. It's celebration time, man. He's going to break Terry Funk's leg right here. So the way the whole worked, it put both me and Terry Funk on our backs. And then our rear ends are basically touching. And I'm up there. Our legs are kind of wrapped around each other. But I have a hold that's capable of breaking anybody's leg. My dad did a whole bunch of guys' legs just to prove that it could be done. It was a very vulnerable position for me. I couldn't move. But I had his right leg, and he wasn't going anywhere either. So it was pandemonium in the ring at this point. Now, the two referees are trying to stop me from hurting the champion. It was also pandemonium in the building because the fans are upset over the reversal of the world championship. And uh, now my opportunity to end Funk's run as world champion is all gone for them. The bell's ringing like crazy the whole time, and everybody is on their feet. And many of them are already starting to come to the ring. They're pissed. Holy cow. All of this is happening at once, all at one time, Ron. How did the, how did the referees restore order after all this? Well, yes, it was all happening at once, but the referees weren't going to have to break my hold on Funk. That was the whole deal. They were both just really, really desperate for me to let go. And as if there wasn't already enough happening, the biggest shock is still to come for everybody. The unthinkable is about to happen. Ronnie Garvin comes running from the back of the building to the ring. Uh He forced his way through the crowd and up onto the apron. Now, hundreds of fans had already surrounded the ring by this point. They were upset. Uh, They were happy. They, They were just, they didn't know what to do with themselves, you know. So uh, Ronnie had to push his way through these fans and get up on the apron. And uh, the fans were just extremely mad already. So Garvin climbed up to the top rope. Now I'm laying on my back. I've got Funk's ankle in, in my hand and, uh, and I'm cranking away on his leg. And I look up and I see Ronnie Garvin standing on the top rope above me. And uh, I was absolutely helpless to defend myself. I'm laying on my back, uh, double hands full of Terry Funk's ankle. 
And Garvin leaped from that top rope. All I could do was watch it coming. <laughs> There's no way I'm going to roll over. I can't do anything. I'm locked in there in that position. And, and at the height of his jump, it looked like to me he had to be 30 feet in the air. I'd never seen anybody jump like that. I mean, monkeys don't jump that high. It was just unbelievable. And he drove his knee into my throat so hard that the back of my head hit the mat so hard it knocked me out. Knock me unconscious. Man, Ron, that is absolutely incredible. I had forgotten just how exciting that match was. After all this, you were stretchered through the building, over and around fans, sent by ambulance to a hospital, admitted, and then you stayed there for three days. And you still have a problem sometimes with your throat from that knee drop almost 45 years Later, you still think about Ronnie Garvin, don't you? So, such was the life of a wrestler back in those days. There have been so many great memories in the last 200 weeks, absolutely. Part one of the 200th Studcast has been absolutely amazing so far. Hey, this is the great Brian Last, and it's been such an honor to be a part of so many episodes of the Studcast, and it's an even bigger honor to be here on the 200th episode to say congratulations, Ron. Great job, and keep going. We only have 600 more episodes until we get to USA. We're on the way. I'm telling you, Lou and I were trying to estimate the total hours you've spent talking in the first 200 studcast. Your show averages more than 70 minutes each. That's a total of about 14,000 minutes. 235 hours, not counting the 41 three-hour Super Studcast, which are now available. That's been that's a lot of free time devoted to educating fans about your family, your wrestling companies, and even revealing what was behind the closed door of the kayfabe era. Well, you're right, Dave. Uh, that is a lot of time. 235 hours, 14,000 minutes. Wow. I, I, <laughs> I, I, this, the, the hours sound quite a few, but the minutes are kind of outrageous. But <laughs> I got to tell you, I've enjoyed every minute of it. And uh, speaking of my wrestling companies, that is some of what we we're going to be talking about next week in part two of the 200 Studcast. We're going to focus next week on the ride ahead. We will be reliving some of the future of my life from 1978 until 1988, uh, the end of my wrestling career. And uh, part two begins with probably the worst thing that ever happened to me in wrestling. And then it's going to be followed by some of the greatest accomplishments that I ever did afterward. Wow. And I look forward to part two, Dave. We're going to be talking about the road ahead. We're only three years into a 14-year story before I end my wrestling career. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then to hockey and the real business world of ADT security takes place. So uh, I want to thank everybody today, all the loyal listeners out there, and hopefully, uh, you know, the thousands of newcomers that uh, listen to this one for the first time. And uh, I want to thank you for taking the ride with us for the first time, those that this is the first time for you. And I hope you have enjoyed this special studcast today, obviously, and that you're going to return for next week's part two. And please take care of yourselves and others, and may God bless us all. God bless you too, Stud. Such fun today, and congratulations again on episode number 200, part one. 
This is David Summers reminding you that Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.